All righty. Nice. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. <laughs> For those of you who haven't figured it out, <laughs> this is our first half of our Full Metal Jacket podcast. Uh, I think Peter and I felt that if we were going to tackle uh, one of the real giants and a personal favorite of both of ours, uh, we couldn't really do it in one podcast. Yeah, we're going to do two podcasts on Matthew Modine. <laughs> um, so we're going to split Full Metal Jacket. I mean, the movie itself is very clearly bifurcated into the boot camp scenes and the Vietnam scenes. So we're going to do a podcast on boot camp, and we're going to do a podcast on the second half of the movie in Vietnam. And we'll start off today with uh, the boot camp scene. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um this is 1987. 1987. Uh, this is uh, not Kubrick's first foray into war, right? Fear and Desire, Paths right. of Glory, Spartacus, Paths of Glory especially. Dr. Strangelove, yeah. Barry Lyndon. Yep. I mean, Barry Lyndon uh, has many scenes of combat. Um, so this is, you know, this is a continuation of Kubrick's interest in uh, human warfare, and Clockwork uh, what Orange, it does to one people. might say. Yeah, I don't know. Clockwork Orange is more about violence and warfare. It's a little bit of a different thing. Yeah, but I think, it, you know, he it changed the way he portrayed violence in this movie because he wasn't as explicit. Maybe. I mean, this is a very unromantic war film. Oh, yeah. You know, when this you is, when you compare uh, it to other other war movies that other directors made, and, and it's impossible to talk about this movie without discussing Platoon, right? Which, Platoon which, came out very, very close to the same time. I mean, they were basically contemporaneous. And we've and done a podcast. Uh, we've done a podcast on Platoon. I don't remember if we did that together or was that a solo one for me? I can't remember, but... I think you did it solo. But, you know, I mean, what's interesting about Platoon is how... I always, I'm always remarked about how Platoon sucked up all the attention and the gravity and the awards. And it's just not a tenth as good a movie as Full Metal Jacket. And Full Metal Jacket kind of got lost in the shuffle because... You know, it came out a year later, and Hollywood wasn't as gung ho on it. It's it's a more opaque, less accessible film. Um, it is whereas Platoon has a lot of romantic themes, not sort of like a sort of like boy girl romance, but sort of like th there's there's a lot of the way this sort of score in Platoon is done and the way that it's shot. You know, there's it, it's a it's it's a more of a sort of a syrupy portrayal of war in a lot of ways. Whereas, you know, in, in full metal jacket, the, the rose colored glasses not only have been taken off, but they've been stomped on and then driven over by a tank. Yeah. And, and I mean, this movie is like pretty much like all of Kubrick's movies and is very dense is this mixture of comprehensible and opaque is, um, is it has a ton of levels of complexity. Um, it gets better over time. And 
I think that you realize more about it when you see it over years and you watch it once in a while. And, you know, that's kind of true of all great art in a way, right? Whereas something like Platoon is just relatively simple by comparison. And, and Platoon is very, like, it's very saccharine, you know, like the good people are really good. The bad people are really bad. Like really, the Charlie Sheen character is one of the few characters in Platoon who's sort of allowed to be a little bit gray, whereas this movie is all about gray. I mean, the... It's a, I mean, right. I mean, it's about... I mean, a mixture in within each person. Now there's a mixture of good and evil, right. In everyone. And what's interesting is, and we're just, I'm making, I'll make, I guess we'll have to make one or two comments about the Vietnam part of the film in this half. I mean, what's, what always amazes me about this movie is that, you know, Kubrick allows Joker to come out and, and say, well, at least what I think is the theme of the movie. You know, he, he says to the, to the officer in Vietnam, you know, that his, his helmet says, you know, born to kill and has a peace sign on it because of the, the Jungian things or the duality of man. Like he just comes right. out and says it um which gives kubrick a lot more leeway in how to craft the characters meaning the characters can behave good in one scene and bad in another and you still like them and understand them yeah i mean i this movie you know partly i think the reception was mixed because it came out after you know at the tail end of everybody else's vietnam movie starting with apocalypse now um or maybe the deer hunter. Right, I was going to say the exactly deer hunter they, as well. Um, but it's more than that. I mean, how many Kubrick movies had a really sterling reception when they came out? I mean, it's basically almost all of them. If you look at the reviews from the time, they're mixed. And and the movies, and then then over twenty or thirty years, they become a classic. And I think you know, there he's not making popcorn movies. You know, this isn't Hamburger Hill. No right? way. This I mean, is it's, a it's movie not, it's that not candy. He didn't work on this, you know, for a decade for nothing. Right. It's not wallpaper. It's a. It's an oil painting. It's Guernica. You know, this is not. Uh, it's not. It was that guy in the mall who? Uh, you know makes the uh like the the, the painter the gauzy of scenes you know right right, his, right thomas, thomas kincaid. kincaid right this is not thomas <laughs> kincaid right no 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 um you know i it's the real uh personally i i mean i i know you feel this way too but kubrick is he's he's incredible i mean he just uh, anybody who who really kind of loves film I think is amazed by Kubrick. Well, and I think listeners of the podcast have certainly know from my comments that he's my favorite director. Yeah, me too. Um, I think every most people's favorite director, probably, and including uh, other some, directors. Some. Well, you know, I was going to say that I think a lot of you know Joe Sixpacks may or may not embrace Kubrick, but when you listen to film directors talk about him, you know, people ranging from you know, Woody Allen to Peter Bogdanovich to Martin Scorsese, you know, they always talk about Kubrick and, and Spielberg. I mean, who obviously knew Kubrick and uh, attempted to work with him on AI to some extent. I mean, like, it's interesting to listen to them talk about him. Yeah, I mean, Spielberg idolized um, him. You know, when, when we were uh, in high school, uh, the summer that this movie came out, you and I both worked at the same movie theater. Right. 
um, which in retrospect, what a god awful job. But anyway, <laughs> um, you survived longer than I did. I only lasted about two to three weeks, but I think you worked there the whole summer. Yes. And uh, it was an excellent preparatory experience for life. <laughs> we both, so for the listeners, we both worked the candy counter. At a movie theater that trusted us so little that the uniforms did not have pockets so that we could not steal. Right. Well, and we made four <laughs> um, bucks an hour. But what I was going to say is, you know, the deal at the movie theater was um, that you could see any movie you wanted for free because you worked there, which I discovered actually meant that you barely saw anything because after an eight or ten hour shift at that candy counter, you didn't want to hang around two more hours. But... I did see Full Metal Jacket several times that summer, and more than a couple times at the end of my shift, I wandered into Full Metal Jacket, and wherever it was playing from, I watched it to the end. So that was my meager fringe benefit from that job. That and the polyester pants. <laughs> I still wear them sometimes, just, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, the first half of the movie, unlike Platoon, by the way, which opens... At the midpoint of this film, the opening scene of Platoon is Charlie Sheen's disembarkation in Vietnam. You know, this this doesn't do that. And this really uh, taking from, you know, Gustav Hasford's novel that the movie is based on the short timers starts off in boot camp. Um, and we begin with the opening scene of the the men having their head shaved. Right. Right. Their their true moment of indoctrination into the military. And then we are instantaneously introduced uh, to all of our main characters in just a few minutes, right? Private Joker, right? Uh, cowboy, Sergeant Hartman, Gomer Pyle, Cowboy, right? Right. Everyone is, we meet everybody animal, right animal away. Mother and Eight Ball, like a couple of the guys in the squad, but everybody else we meet. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The Lust Hog Squad from the second half is not composed of their platoon mates, except for Cowboy. Right. Um, By the way, there's going to be spoilers uh, if you haven't seen the movie, and obviously... Yeah, but if you, you haven't know. seen this movie in the last 42 years, sorry, 32 years, we got nothing for well, you. Well, yeah. Go um, see it immediately, if you haven't. Do you know who Kubrick wanted to play Joker? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he wanted to play Animal Mother, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> he wanted Anthony Michael Hall uh, of The Breakfast Club and 16 Candles to play Joker. The look's a little similar. Yeah, and you could kind of see how there was some maybe some appeal there. Um, and you know that the actors in this, they mostly auditioned by videotape. Yep. Because Kubrick was in England, so they all made videotapes and mailed them in. And I read somewhere that there were, depending on where you read, three or 4,000 submissions. And Kubrick's assistants pared it down to anywhere from, depending on what you read, 50 to 100 Um I'm sorry, 50 to 800. And then Kubrick watched the second batch, which um, there's all the numbers are all over the map, depending on where you read, but anywhere from dozens to hundreds. And then they made the decisions based on videotaped auditions. Yeah, I mean, I think word got around that um, Kubrick was making a film and his last film was seven years earlier, was The Shining. And um, word got around and he just just so many people sent videotapes in and i think most of them probably weren't very good and um leon his long-suffering assistant since um barry linden um basically leon vitale probably sat there and watched like four thousand 
um, hours of videotape uh, and didn't sleep. Um, and you know, Kubrick was probably like, oh, Leon, just watch some of those videos and get back to me. Right. <laughs> that was probably all the instruction he gave. Well, him. then at the end, he probably, after he watched, he, he spent, you know, 4,000 hours in a row with like one hour of sleep in the middle watching them. Kubrick probably told them to go through them again and color code them because he didn't do it the first time. You know that Vitaly is not just his assistant, but he's in Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's where he met Kubrick. He gave up an acting career, basically, to go work for Stanley Kubrick as sort of his his right-hand man, essentially. But uh, very interesting guy. But uh, You know, the, the opening scene, I mean, among the most famous scenes in the film, right? It's this very long sequence after their heads are shaved. They're in the barracks. And the barracks, by the way, is a set. The barracks is not a real barracks. It's a set. Right. Um, it's Hartman essentially introduces himself to the men, establishes dominance very quickly, and in a series of uh, interactions with the main characters, is revealed to be incredibly brutal. Right. Yeah. He, he is the star um, of the first half of the movie, and his foil is Private Pyle. Vincent D'Onofrio. Right. And this was Vincent D'Onofrio's first movie and made his career... Could you imagine having your first movie be a Kubrick movie? I know. He was basically working off-Broadway or something on stage. And um, Kubrick, like, talked to him a couple of times on the phone, had him send in another tape. Like, I guess he made it through the process a ways. But he knew Matthew Modine, who was already cast, because they shot the Vietnam portion of the movie first. Um, right, because they had their hair. Right. And um, it was his first role. And, and Lee Ermey... Um, it was the role that made his career. Right. He'd been in other films before. Right. But um, he roles. was initially brought in as an advisor. And there's a million versions of the story. But it, it, the, no matter how you read or hear about these versions of the story, he was able to sort of beg, cajole and convince Kubrick that he was better off to play the drill sergeant. The guy who was supposed to play the drill sergeant is the door gunner in the Vietnam scenes. The guy where Joker says, how can you shoot women and children? Right. The guy who says, easy, you just don't lead them as yeah, much. That guy. That's the guy who was supposed to be the original um, drill sergeant. And then he was actually hired and then Ermi kind of nudged him out. Well, I think that, I mean, it's, that is just, by the way, the guy's name is, uh, Tom Colseri or Tim Colseri, I think, but my God, what a loss that, that is awful. But on the other hand, you cannot argue with Lee Ermi's casting. And I think Lee Ermi, you know, looking at interviews with Lee Ermey and with, with others about the movie over the years, I, I think that Ermey certainly want, he, he's not, he makes no bones about the fact that he wanted the job because he thought he could do a really, you know, he could really do, he was really in his wheelhouse. A better job. Right. I mean, he, he was a Marine gunnery sergeant and he did serve as a drill instructor during Vietnam. Um, he retired from the Marine Corps like in the early 70s. Um, and so he, he made every attempt to get the role. And I think the main way he got it was with also a videotape, because I think he, he, they allowed him to kind of like select the extras and he made a tape where he basically was 
being the drill sergeant with the extras and he had his uniform on and um he uh he basically just did this performance just maybe not quickly not as as smooth as it ended up in in the movie but um Right. And I think the gimmick for that was that he didn't repeat himself. He, I, what I've read is that this, I'm telling you, like, there's so many stories about this. It's hard to know what's true and what's not is, is they had a contingent of Royal Marines who were extras and they had Hartman just insult them on and on and on and on and on. And, the, and what really caught everybody's attention was he didn't repeat himself. Like he never used the same insult twice. And, and the, the video is apparently quite long. Yeah, and I think that he, they basically, before he was cast in the role, they were already uh, using him to uh, to spruce up the dialogue because he, he was, I guess, what was written by um, Kubrick and the other couple screenwriters. Um, Michael Hare. Michael Hare from um, Dispatch, who wrote Dispatches. Right. And Gust of Hosford, who wrote The Short Timers, um, collaborated with Kubrick over a few years, I guess, to write the screenplay. And... Their screenplay supposedly was pretty good, but um, I, I think that that Lee Ermey was able to. He was. It was so profane. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff made it in the movie. The insults are incredible, and I think no one had that level of intense profanity and and <laughs> just color. You know, vitality. Well, well I was going to say, you know, like I'm laughing because as I'm running the lines through my head, like it's funny too. They're hilarious. Like, I remember. I saw this movie for the very first time with my dad. And I remember in that opening scene when Hartman is just tearing into the men. Like, me and my dad were both kind of laughing. And then, you know, they kind of pull you into the movie because Pyle laughs, right? And that's sort of what gets Pyle on Hartman's bad side, right? He laughs at him. Right. Like, he recognizes, like, these insults are funny, you know? And then, like, his laughter is noticed and then really bites him in the ass. Yeah, he's sort of grinning. And he's also not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, (laughs) And he's grinning and he can't stop grinning, which, by the way, it looks incredibly realistic. I'm really trying, sir! I mean, it's such a great scene for him. And it, it, you're right, it, it goes from from um, wow, I've never seen anything. This is kind of amusing and uh, and and uh, really interesting. It goes to this is interesting but horrifying uh, in right. about and thirty then, seconds. And you think about how this movie, like, no one can play a drill instructor for like the next hundred years. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, like you watch Lou Gossett Jr. an officer and a gentleman, and it just pales besides this. You watch Jarhead, for example, which has an opening scene in the barracks that's extremely similar to this, even with some of the same same lines. Right. And it, it just has no impact because you've seen it before and you've seen it better. And he, he was it's tremendous. It's as if like, you and I were going to write a movie, and at the end of the movie, the main character was going to use magical powers to fire a proton torpedo and blow up a large cube-shaped uh, you know, Death Star that was going to blow up a planet. You'd be like, eh. Like, no matter how good we did that, people would be like, well, I saw that before in Star Wars. And like Lee Ermey kind of ruined the Drill Instructor movie. It was terrific. And then they took all of Lee Ermey's gifts and apparently Leon Vitale, because Lee Ermey didn't have a lot of experience as an actor and, and Leon Vitale was an actor. He worked with him on their lines and he worked with him about his marks and his lines and his physical performance. 
and they just drilled constantly for weeks and weeks and weeks until that's one the way that his lines came out so quickly and smoothly i think they had sped him up to the point where it it had so much impact because he delivered them so fluently and so rapidly um you know and he's screaming the entire time but but um and his eyeballs are bugging out i mean he he just he was here you are all equally yeah, worthless just a bear scumbag <laughs> oh, sorry, <really> high, <laughs> Um, I mean, it's, it's just, he is just riveting. I mean, he's incredible. And, uh, you know, but the barracks it, is this, it's, everything's a right angle. Everything is, is fluorescent lighting and, um, right. And the, the, the right angles give Kubrick ample opportunity to indulge his one point perspective cinematography. All the time. Um, and, you know, also and, Lee Ermey trained the actors and the extras so that he taught them how to shoot. Uh, so he actually was, in a way, their drill sergeant um, during during training so that and, you know, this movie famously uh, took like 14 months or something like that to shoot. So they were actually essentially in boot camp for longer than boot camp really is. Right, but they, well, they did. They did their one-year tour of duty. Yeah, um, and uh, and so he trained them actually to run the obstacle course the way you know to march, to do um, uh, all the you know the, the maneuvers around the barracks and and everything. They actually he trained them as if they were recruits, uh, so everything looked real. Uh, and you see them get better at it. I guess the way he edited it together because they actually are sort of tightly marching and moving in formation later on through the training. Um, you know, when you watch this movie the first time, I mean, again, you know, when I've seen this movie, you know, ad nauseum, I practically have this movie memorized. Yeah. Uh, but when you watch it the first time, like, it's not clear who the main character is in the boot camp scenes. Like, is it Joker? Is it Pyle? Mm-hmm. Is it Hardman? You know, like they're all sort of vying for your attention Hart, in that Hartman first wins. hour of the film. <laughs> I mean, who who ends up being the character? Hartman is so he is everything. At the, the, whole, the whole well, beginning. he's the most captivating, but he's not the protagonist. No. Like it kind of becomes apparent as the movie goes on that the that that. Uh, Joker, Joker is. is the protagonist, but you're not so sure. And for example, in the opening head shaving scene, you know, all the characters get the same few seconds of screen time. Like the camera doesn't linger on Joker. Like you're not, it's not telegraphed to you that he's, he's the main character. Right. Well, I mean, Kubrick's not going to stick with something as unsophisticated as we need to give the audience one person and one viewpoint to fixate on. I mean, he he's going to do the exact opposite of that whenever possible, unless you really need to be in one viewpoint to understand something. But in this movie, right. you and don't. It's too sentimental to do it that way. Much too. too. Uh, you know, it decreases <clears throat> complexity. I mean, the the boot camp scene is about a lot of things. One is that the men are being prepared for combat and for killing, and 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 Ermi explicitly says that, right? Like the men are becoming accustomed to and desensitized to violence, right? right? Violence at his hands, uh, violence at each other's hands. In the book, I don't know if you've read the short timers, in the book, uh, 
he's not called Harbin. He's called uh, Gunny Gerheim is what they call the, the Harbin character in the book. And, and in the book, he beats the men not infrequently, although he will often beat them out of view of the other men. Like he'll call them into his office or into a separate area and beat them up. Uh, but, you know, like these are guys who are awash in violence and preparing for violence all day long. And then very quickly, right, we learn that Gomer Pyle can't keep up. Right. Right. And then he, he, he finds himself on the receiving end of a disproportionate amount of uh, Sergeant Hartman's ire and anger. Yeah. And uh, you get the sense that there's one in every class. As you're watching, you know, they're in every platoon, training platoon, there's there's one that gets singled out and it's part of his strategy. Um, you don't get the sense that Private Pyle is, a, <clears throat> excuse me, is a once uh, once in a lifetime thing. I mean, maybe in the end it kind of becomes that way. But as you're going along, you get the sense that he picks the slowest one, the fattest one, the most rebellious one, something to break uh, and to provide a foil for the other recruits. Right. And, and to provide the recruits something to, to contrast with. Right. And um, to contrast with and also to make them responsible for the actions for his actions and therefore become a group and not only pressure the weak link into train into coming up to snuff, but also to learn how to basically become deep, depersonalized into a group. Um, and, you know, if you, if you watch the, the first hour, like the, the actual number of times that pile is singled out you know it's really it's much more than anybody else right he chokes him the scene where he knocks his hat off yeah right the jelly donut scene by the way they don't just say donut like they say jelly donut to make it more ridiculous and to sort of emphasize piles fat yes um you know the blanket party yeah right all these scenes culminate in you know the jelly donut scene where where Hardman then resorts to collective punishment. Right, he's escalating. Right. Yeah, right. And then there's there's other scenes of collective punishment where you get the sense that they're all having to do push ups or sit ups or whatever the heck, uh, and and Pyle does not, which you know leads up to the blanket party where they they tie Pyle down, gag him, and every member of the platoon, including Joker, who's been you know Schooling tasked him. with making Pyle a better soldier. You know, they assault him with ta with uh, towels wrapped around bars of what looks like ivory soap. Yeah. And and it's interesting to note that Pyle, who is supposed to help him, right, hits him the Joker, most yeah. and the hardest of anyone. Right. And Pyle sees him. Like, if you watch that scene, Pyle is, turns his head to the left and he sees its Joker. Like, the one, the one maybe sort of kind of friend he had. Right. And then after that, Pyle becomes, right, essentially an inhuman super soldier. Pyle transforms into a monster, essentially, uh, over time. And he, he goes from weak, he gets singled out, and then he basically undergoes, ironically, the ultimate transformation that the Marines, in a sense, are trying to transform them into. He becomes a killer. And he becomes right. a monster and, who has and, no regard for himself. 
Right. An inhuman killer. Right. And, um, you know, the, the, the climactic scene, there are probably, you know, there are two climactic scenes in the movie. There's one at the end of the first half and there's one at the end of the second half. And the end of the first half, uh, is when Joker's on night watch. He finds pile in, on the toilets, uh, with with this M14 rifle that they've been training with, and uh, he has live ammunition in it, and he's screaming and he's pretty much obviously lost his mind. Right, he's completely psychotic, and and there's hints that he's psychotic before this scene because Joker sees him talking to his rifle. Right, Joker starts to get really. Joker gradually becomes more and more worried about Pyle, uh, and and he he does that. Kubrick's able to show all these things with such economy, just with some some editing, a couple of mi- very, very minimal comments, and some editing showing maybe Joker's facial expression or reaction or watching, you know, putting the story together by showing a shot of pile and doing something strange, and then maybe a not very obvious reaction shot of Joker. Um, so he's able to kind of build the feeling about what's going to happen. He builds anticipation that, you know, that Pyle's not, he's not doing well. And, and there's also, you know, like they, you know, Modine's uh, Joker is able to sort of be complex enough. Like he's able to recognize that Pyle's in trouble, but, and he feels sort of guilt and shame over it, but he doesn't really do much to help him at this point anymore. Right. He kind of can't reach out to Pyle after the blanket party. Well, I, I, you get the sense that he really did try to help him for a long time. And I think he probably would help him, but it's almost like he starts to get worried because he's going nuts. He's getting more concerned. And I guess they're right. Maybe there's not that much he can do. They're also sort of getting towards the end of training. They're going to get out of there. And, uh, and right. They're getting salty as he says. Right. And pile in the end does make it and gets assigned to infantry. And it's right after that. It's basically like their last night there. It's implied. Um, and you know, both climaxes the the first and the second climax in the film involve attempts at addressing the danger of a lone gunman. Right. Right. It's, it's like, there's a, there's parallels between the two climactic scenes. Yeah. And so, and with, you know, I'm oh, sorry. And when Joker, when Joker finds him, right, you know, Joker tries to play on the fact that he had been Pyle's friend. Right. Right. Take it easy, bro. Right. Right. Well, he, he's, uh, he's acting quite in a way, you know, in an expected normal fashion. I mean, Joker's terrified, but he's not sure what's going to happen. And then when Hartman comes in, Joker Hartman comes in and he acts the only way Hartman knows how, which is an, with absolute dominance and maximum volume, you know, l- you know, decibel volume. And what's interesting is just before we get to Hartman, you know, when Joker is talking to him, it doesn't really have any effect, you know, like he's beyond Joker's reach at this point. He's he's beyond. You know, he yeah. starts he starts uh, doing a you know a, a parade drill. Yeah, in the bathroom, shouting at the top of his lungs. He's he's completely nuts. I mean, he's committed at this point. He's transformed. He's out of the out of his chrysalis of badness, and he's transformed. Right. Yeah. 
He's gone full section eight. He's totally nuts. And, uh, and, uh, he's inconsolable. Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, when, when Hardman comes in, you know, he doesn't perceive the danger and he has to be told by Joker that Pyle's not just acting crazy. He's acting crazy with a fully loaded gun. Right. And sir, is the private duty to inform the senior right. drill instructor? Exactly. And he <laughs> says it in, in their coded way that they convey all information. Um, and Hartman completely ignores him. I mean, he gets, he clearly hears the information, but it doesn't change anything that he's doing. Right. He's falling back on what's worked his whole career. Right. And, and, you know, the irony is that, Hardman, as much as the other men of the platoon, you know, with the blanket party and everything else, made Joker into what he is. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, in a, in a little bit, it's kind of a Frankenstein story a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he, he turned. Right. Well, he turned. Exactly. They, you know, Pyle did too well. His transformation into a killer without personal regard for safety um, sort of takes a it goes too far and it takes a little bit of a bend. But yeah, they made him, uh, and then he uh, and then he he kills Hardman, and it's funny, you know, it's funny because I remember when I saw this the first time, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, right. you know, like where are we going here, you know, and then when he shoots Hardman, and it's cathartic for him, you know, like he has right. vented his anger at the source, right? And he shoots him once, and it's in the middle of the chest, and it's it's even though the scene is set up it's extremely abrupt when he actually shoots him he it's that you know like even in the sound design you know that kubrick basically micromanages everything so there's no <laughs> visually and in the sound design there's no run-up like hartman's that might be the greatest understatement you've ever yeah, uttered in the history of this podcast exactly so you know there's no it's in the middle of a word he shoots him there's no there's no, he doesn't tip his hat. It's very abrupt. There's no rise time for you to process. And then rapidly, there's a brief moment where he might kill Joker. Right. And Joker is essentially uh, begging for his life. Go easy, bro. Yep. And then he, right. something he decides not to, just based on whatever instinct. Maybe based and on I, the fact that Joker did try to help him and had some empathy in him. Maybe. Although Joker also, the, if you look at Joker's face in that scene, there's, there's guilt on his face, too. Like, Joker recognizes that he has played a part in all of this. Guilt and terror, sure. And it makes you wonder, by the way, of course it's never shown, but it makes you wonder, like, you know, what did Joker say to the investigators, like to the military police who showed up, right? Did Joker reveal his part in the blanket party? Of course not. It doesn't matter because they're not going to really investigate that right. back then. They're never going to even mention the blanket party. I mean, you know, a la um, Jack Nicholson, you know, 25 years later or whatever, 20, 15 years later when they made uh, A Few Good Men, which based was based on basically Marine unit um, within unit uh, brutality, and he doesn't. It takes ma really amazing maneuvers by Tom Cruise's character to get him to reveal it. Um, but uh, 
So, you know, I did, a, just, I did a little reading about blanket parties, and apparently in days of yore, it was actually not that uncommon, and there's all sorts of versions of the blanket party, and some of which were more done for laughs as opposed to, like, sheer cruelty and violence. But now you can't do it. Like, uh, like uh, sure. you could be court-martialed for blanket party in the military nowadays. Oh, I'm sure. I think that now they, they're not physical with the recruits anymore. They still abuse them. Or, yeah, but and apparently the original use of the term blanket party meant that they threw a blanket on top of you um, and held you on the ground. And then people would basically like put socks inside another sock, like a one sock was balled up at the end and wacky with the socks. That was the apparently the original uh, blanket party. Better that um, than soap. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> with angles. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the first half ends very abruptly, and then we're transported, which we'll talk about in the second podcast, but we're sort of transported what looks to be, at the very least, months forward in time, because Joker's hair is long, and Joker is, you know, he is comfortable in Vietnam. But we'll talk more about that transition in a bit. Um I, you know, it's it's funny. It's almost two different movies, you know, yep. like, uh, it, I mean, like the way that the, the two halves of the movies are lit and shot and set up are, are so different. Like it shows you his technical skill that he's able to pull both things off in one film. Yep. And, um, you know, they when when uh, when Joker, sorry, when um, um, when Gomer Private Pile shoots himself sits down and shoots himself also is feel is abrupt even though you see it coming with the second or two um it they did that in like two or three takes apparently yeah the apparently the jelly donut scene depending on what you read was anywhere from 30 to 50 takes yeah. jelly donut scene. apparently um what was i gonna say uh you know for years, when when this was on, I would just kind of watch the the boot camp scene. Uh, that sort of held my interest more over years, and now I sort of find the second half in some ways more interesting. Perhaps I've watched the the boot camp scene too much. You know, Arliss Howard, who plays Cowboy, has a small part in the first half, and he becomes a much bigger character. In the second half, right. I mean, he's notable in the first half for a couple of bits. Like, there's a bit where he's cleaning the head with Joker, and they sort of talk about screwing each other's mothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and uh, Cowboy is the one who holds the the it's a blanket or a sock or something in Joker's mouth uh, during the blanket party. Yeah. Um, but you know, other than that, Cowboy doesn't have too much beyond a few scenes here and there, but he becomes a much bigger and important character in the second half. Um, and I don't think anybody else besides Joker, um, and Cowboy are appear in both half of the film. None of the other men in the platoon. No, that's it. Uh, we see again, right. And when Joker meets the lust hog squad, you know, Cowboy is the only one that he knows. Right. And they're, they're both um, sergeants by that point, so when it flashes forward, uh, it's it's probably about a year close. Um, I read that Val Kilmer was also considered. Like, so, so apparently Anthony Michael Hall worked on training and prepping for the film for close to a year, and they, they couldn't work out the details of his contract and the schedule, and in the end he fell through. And then apparently Val Kilmer 
bubbled to the top, and for a brief period, Val Kilmer had the role of Joker before Kubrick settled on Modine. Um, and uh, uh, legend has it that at one point Val Kilmer angrily confronted Modine in L.A. about it, and Modine didn't know who he was or what he was talking about. Wow. Well, you know, Kilmer probably at that point recognized that he'd lost the lead in the Kubrick movie. Yeah, although Kilmer had a pretty good career, Modine this this is this was his this still is the biggest role he's ever had. It is, I, I definitely think so. And Modine's been in a lot of movies over the years. You know, Modine's too. problem was he he kind of was almost too good looking. Like he ended up sort of always playing these breezy guys. Yeah. You know, and it was it was I think hard for him to get characters that had as much depth. Like for example, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. You know, like he's in uh, the third Dark Knight movie. He's in Gross Anatomy. Like he always plays the good looking breezy guy. You know, I think he did like some sort of Lifetime type movies where he would always be like the perfect good looking husband. But he never really got anything this big again. He, he Modine is an interesting guy. He's a like bright when guy. you. He wanted to direct. If you listen it. to, yeah, and if you listen to him talk, like, like he's given a lot of intervals about Full Metal Jacket. And he actually wrote a book called Full Metal Jacket Diary, which is essentially the publication of his notes that he took during the making of the movie. I mean, he's pretty sophisticated and insightful about the way that he experienced the film, the you know the lessons he learned from Kubrick and and how it affected his career. Right. Uh, but uh, it is interesting that he kind of you know he never really achieved this level of success again. Right. But on the other hand, you know, did Ryan O'Neill right after <laughs> Barry Lyndon? No, I'm being no. serious. Right. Did Malcolm McDowell after Clockwork Orange? No. Like, I mean, it's a big burden to carry a Kubrick film. Well, um, Vincent D'Onofrio also said that, you know, apparently he, he didn't, he had no role. And when Kubrick called him and told him, uh, called him from London and told him, you know, uh, you have the role of Private Pile, um, he said, uh, um, Kubrick said to him, like, all right, you know, have, have your agent, uh, you know, call us or whatever, we'll get it set up. And he said, I don't have an agent. And Kubrick said, <laughs> so Kubrick said, "You do now. Just just call him and tell him you got a role in my movie." And it, it was apparently, it was, so D'Onofrio hung up and he was like, "Huh?" And he did. He said he, he went to like an agent, and a guy, uh, I think, it, uh, some through a friend of his, and it was absolutely true. Like basically, you can get just telling them you have a role in a Kubrick movie, you can get any agent. Right. Well, just the mention of I'm sure of Kubrick's name. Arliss Howard did a few things over the years. You could occasionally spot him in movies. Uh, he has a bit part in um, Natural Born Killers. Um, uh, he's He plays this character, Owen, who sort of appears at the beginning and the end of the movie and plays a small but pivotal role in Full Metal Jacket. And I just every couple of years, like you'll you'll turn on something, and Arliss Howard will have a part in it. But uh, and obviously, Lee Ermey just became Lee Ermey after this, and he essentially made an entire career out of his persona. Yep, and you know some of the other guys were working, um, you know, solid working character actors, or you know they had a they had a pretty reasonable career, like you know Adam Baldwin and Arliss Howard and. Um, you know, they, they worked. 
But, you know, but Lee Ermey really embraced it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he had some other acting roles, but, like, he just embraced it. Like, he had a show on the Military Channel. Did you ever watch his show on the Military yeah. Channel? Yeah. Uh, what was the name of the show? I'm trying to remember. Something like Hua or something. It was like Mail Call something or like, something. It was something military-minded, and he would go around and shoot machine guns, basically. Right. It was great. It was exactly what you wanted. You know, like, in this episode, I will shoot a howitzer. Yeah, I know. And then, <laughs> you know, and, and it was, you loved and then it. And then it would be, it was like about 90% commercials. Like, it was almost <laughs> no him shooting the howitzer. <laughs> oh, my God. Um... All right, let's let's pause here, and then we'll discuss uh, the Battle of Hue in uh, part two when we see the soldiers in Vietnam. Okay. All right. See you in a bit. All right, everybody, we'll be back for part two.